I'm more focused on identification, even self-identification, because diagnosis is so inaccessible. Mm -hmm. And even though it's still necessary if you want supports like NDIS, I think there's an element where how are we going to identify those of us who are autistic but never meet the criteria until we are beyond breaking point because it's so deficit-focused but still need that earlier support so we don't have to break to get help, you know what I mean? This ties into this struggle that I am having, Annie, that I can't tell you how much this is killing me at the moment, but I write those reports for people to get NDIS funding. I cannot write them to be neurodiverse affirming. No, because they have to be so horrible. Because then you Mm -hmm. don't get funding. And I have to use things like delayed pragmatic Mm -hmm. skills, whereas I'm like, you don't have delayed pragmatic skills, you have autistic pragmatic skills. Yeah, exactly. You're actually doing quite well and you're growing beautifully into our culture. Well done you is what I want to say. But I have to say like this child has impaired conversational reciprocity and it makes me sick to my stomach. And it's actually something. Yes, but I I don't know what to do because I want to advocate for these people to get their funding. But you have to do that, right? And so, you know, I preface it all with every parent. I go, I've written this horrible report about your child and I'm sorry please don't read it Yes, (laughs) because it's just a letter to the government that is essentially, please give us money. But like half of my job is undoing the trauma. I know that that's causing. (laughs) Yes, but I'm I'm like perpetuating it. And so I would love to be like, no, I'm not doing it. But to do that would be to removing supports for all of these families. Not until NDIS catches up, which is going to take that Yeah, and so it just Mm -hmm. kills me. Welcome to Princess in the Pea podcast, a show where we talk about all things neurodiversity. With those who know it best, lived experience, of course. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer. I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of neurodivergent people like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, mental health, and more, but all with a neurospicy lens. of my chat with the wonderful Frances Brennan. If you haven't listened to episode 11, go check that out first. I decided to call this episode shiny ball syndrome because that is the term that Frances uses at some point in this conversation. And I had a little giggle because I think it is a much nicer name than ADHD. Basically, this is a follow-on conversation from part one where we continue to talk about eating, social and sensory differences. We have multiple exciting revelations and reflect deeply on our own lived experiences and sometimes less deeply, but that's the fun part. There's an exciting part towards the end where Frances talks about how she feels about the deficit-based language required by NDIS in functional reports if you have any hope of getting some funding 
and how this type of language conflicts with her autistic identity and the neurodiversity paradigm. A very important conversation to have with an exciting outcome. So stay tuned. Before we kick off, a quick content warning. As in our last episode, we will still be discussing eating habits and behaviors that could be triggering for anyone with an eating disorder. So please be kind to yourself and your safety always comes first. We'll have some helpful links and contact numbers in the show notes if you feel like you need more support or if any of these topics are triggering. Without further ado, as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. what I have unpacked and I'm not sure what's what and what's accurate, what's not. But obviously we've had a lifetime of experience where we've either masked our interest in other people's small talk or whatever the niceties of life are, or we've not masked and then been severely punished and scolded for it. Absolutely. So every single time that happens, even though, as adults who are quite good at masking when we need to, it's still super traumatic and does trigger those feelings. Absolutely. I just flashed back to I was in a relationship that was, I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, that was borderline, like abusive relationship. But I remember she pulled up and we were on a road trip and we were driving past a place where she used to live. And so she pulled up out the front and she was like, that's the house I used to live in. And I went, oh, cool. Later that night, I got ripped into because I didn't ask any questions. I didn't show any interest. I didn't even care, blah, blah, blah. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, if you had stuff you wanted to tell me about it, why didn't you tell me about it? Yeah. And, you know, even with my current partner, who is so much more understanding, I don't always think to ask, how was your day? Because if I come home from work and something's happened, I'm like, whoa, guess what? (laughs) Like blah, 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 blah. And I work on this basis of if you have something you want to tell me, you'll tell me because that's what I would do. I don't wait for someone to ask me. I come in and I just tell. Um, And so the asking questions of other people is something that I don't do particularly well. Yeah. And I realised that with my my best friend who I, I referenced earlier, who's also autistic, our conversations literally go, I want to tell you a thing about a thing. And then yes. she's like, I want to tell you a thing about a thing. But we're telling each other things. And if we have a follow-up question, we have a follow-up question, that's fine. Yes. But I've realised that, you know, I have other people that I'll talk to and that don't know me as well. And they say things like, oh, this isn't related to what you were talking about, but blah, blah, blah. And I realised we don't even do that. We don't even feel the need to acknowledge that it's not related. We just go, here's a thing I'm thinking about. And that's the fact that I'm thinking about it is enough that I'm allowed to share it. And I almost feel like we appreciate how our minds will take, like, we'll be talking about breakfast and then one of us will say, like, oh, apples, did you know this? And yeah. it's almost like, oh, yeah, like we we go on that journey together. Tangents. Whereas other people are like, wait, we were talking about breakfast. Why did you go out there? So how's this, right? This, like, gets to my core of my, like, fraudulent clinician feelings because one of the big things that we're taught to teach kids is topic maintenance, right? What's that? Topic maintenance means we're staying on topic. So Okay. Ew. That's awful. You say something and then I say something that links to what you say. And then you (laughs) say something that links to what I say. And these links are considered to be very linear. But I can't tell you the weird conversations that I've had with my best friend. And they do link. Yes. But they link in our minds only. That's right. 
and we follow each other because we're having a shared experience and we like each other. So we follow each other on these weird tangents. And sometimes we end up laughing and we're like, how did we end up talking about how bodies decompose or like, you know, when we were talking about preschool excursions and we've ended up over here and we laugh about it sometimes, but we've gone together and it's delightful. You know, I still go, oh my gosh, these are these things that, you know, we we assess for and we comment on and actually there's a cultural difference so yes there is topic maintenance but it's different and do people recognize what autistic topic maintenance looks like because it's different yeah exactly where the neurotypicals learning how to speak our language that's right yeah yeah and like my you know my staff joke and you know sometimes when I grab them I'm like come on let's go on a journey and I take them (laughs) through like all this ridiculous and they follow me and they think it's hilarious but Yeah. yeah I think there's this idea like and I I think that's the other thing like I just find neurotypical conversation so boring because they do stay on one topic for too long same my brain's like this is not dopamine seeking enough for me I'm so bored and I want to shut down or go do something fun and I do that thing that I've been programmed to think is rude which is when someone is talking I'm already thinking about what I'm gonna say next and I'm just waiting for their turn to be over yeah yeah. and then you cut them off because if you don't you'll forget what you're gonna say and then you look like an idiot Yeah. I do that all the time. And because I think what I've got to say is really interesting. Yeah, and they, they'll want to hear it, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're just taught to feel shame around all of that because we're told it's wrong, it's rude, yeah. it's, you know. And I think a lot of people when they hear that, they think that they've got to be loud messages. And I know our experiences do somewhat diverge in the sense that I was much more, I don't want to say quiet, but I was very much more of a people-pleasing, fawn-masking person like I I loved listening to your talk at yellow ladybugs and I was just horrified at how your behavior was really poorly interpreted and and punished and I just thought there is such such a fine line for that to have been my life I was so close to having that same experience but I just got away with it Because I worked very hard at whenever I did get called out, I would cry or I'd make up every excuse in the book and I'd say I'd get better and I'd punish myself. In yeah. and, and most of the time it would just let me scrape through before maybe I'd get a new teacher the next year. <laughs> yeah. It blows my mind. It makes me so mad that there's so many people out there getting put into tension and punished for just being themselves. I didn't realise until that day that I gave that presentation and I spoke to so many people that day and I received so many emails and I received so many Facebook messages, like Instagram, you know. But I didn't realise how many people went the other way. So I thought that I took the most common path in, you know, being like, stuff you all. And I didn't realise that there were all these people that just shut down and I guess like I can only imagine like felt small yes in that because I think I started to feel small and so I made myself very very big yeah but it was bravado like it was all it was all false but I made myself a force to be reckoned with yeah yeah but before that point I actually was that that people pleaser type a teacher's pet yeah gotcha um, for a long time and it wasn't working for you it stopped working yeah I couldn't even compare that experience of people pleasing you know it's something that I'm still unpacking in my 30s and the thing that gets me about it is okay so this is actually eating disorder related right a part of my atypical anorexia recovery has been working for a few years talking a lot <laughs> reading a lot listening a lot doing a lot <laughs> around unpacking diet culture and weight stigma and learning to shift my shame and self-hatred outside of myself and be angry 
with the system and the 70-something billion dollar diet industry that have convinced us all that it's our fault we're fat. (laughs) And getting angry, getting mad, which I actually avoid because I'm a very passionate person and girls aren't supposed to be angry. (laughs) So when I have gotten angry in my life, it's been very much not approved of. I wonder if being gay also made that difference for me because you and I seem like we're very, very similar, but I guess maybe there was permission for me. Oh, that's so interesting. Or maybe I celebrated like a more, you know, stereotypical sort of masculine energy, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't know, but I wonder. Whereas I grew up in a military family where I was the only daughter and I was actually a very girly girl growing up. So I very much identified with that very feminine side and any parts of me that were masculine even if they were the same as my brothers, were tis, 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 no, no, you're not, you're a girl. Mm. Um, and I don't, like, my parents are great and I don't think they meant anything by it. <laughs> but it's also the times and the understanding, you know, like my partner and I talk about, like, raising a gender-neutral child now when, you know, you think about whether that would have even been a thing. It just wouldn't, it just wouldn't have. So, like, gender as a construct is so different now. Yeah. But I do talk to a lot of my autistic mates about this and it's interesting because even now we're all still questioning, like, how much of our gender identity and sexual identity is our choice? Mm. And how much of it is the mask? Absolutely. Because this is so not stay on topic, but it's there's so much overlap. The overlap and the, for anyone who's listening, if any of this makes it in, this is called uh, listening to a conversation between two people with ADHD, right? Like that's what's happened here. Yeah. I feel like the listeners will get it because they'll be like us. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, that'd be like, they'll be loving it because, you know, from, yeah. from one topic to another. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> Poor neurotypicals listening are just going to be like, what? <laughs> Where is this going? What is the purpose of it? We don't yeah, know. Yeah, We're just yeah. riding it. We're in it with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, it's so funny. Uh, one of the interviews I did the other day was with this phenomenal woman and she's done a lot of interviews a lot of podcast interviews and she said it was great it was like a conversation because <laughs> I just I, I I sometimes I make questions just to have some sort of target but most of the time I just want to talk and see where it goes it's fun <laughs> yeah more yeah. interesting stuff comes out then and I think you've got to have that balance as well in going I need to do this in case my my guest needs this to feel comfortable but like you just don't know until you're in it sort of yeah and I usually offer guests um you know like do you want questions in preparation or not not and because I mean I've also been on a lot of podcasts and I've had very different experiences of whether they give me preparation whether they let me hear the edited version before they go live or not it helped my brain marinate it was good like it gave me yeah 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 so now I just offer it but I'm starting to be like tell me what your accessibility needs are because I can't even imagine them all <laughs> like yeah. everyone has so di- and this is like back to not back to because we haven't spoken about it yet but we have uh, <laughs> online is universal design right mm-hmm. I think universal design needs to be applied in education employment health everything and I said this to someone the other day and they just looked at me like oh, universal design oh that'd be hard and I'm like that's not an excuse not to do it it's actually not and it's not yeah you're right it's not I had a principal email me I was just reading it today because I'm going to go out and do some training with this school and we'd sort of said yeah what are are you looking at and she goes identifying which students in the classroom have needs to which I responded all of them yeah thank you human being you ever come across will have needs of some sort and how to accommodate those students Mm -hmm. and I was like well I haven't met those students so I I don't know what they how okay like I was just like wow this person is just looking at this through completely the wrong lens like she wants me to be like have fidgets for this one have but and I'm like 
no, you actually need to like step back. I actually just need to work with you on how to interact with students as though they are people who all have needs. Yes. And probably if you ask them, they can probably tell you what some of their needs are. Or if you spend, you know, an hour with them, two hours with them, you might, you know, get some ideas if, you know, the student's not quite, you know, ready to tell you what they need. Yes. But asking some random professional off the internet, that's actually not a great like step one. Nope. There's a red flag. (laughs) That's so funny. That's so funny. The the thing that got me looking into universal design was my own feelings around when I entered the workforce at 22 after my five years double degree. I struggled so hard with full-time work and all the demands especially things like having to make a lot of phone calls because I'm not, for so many reasons, I'm not a phone call person. And I knew all these things that I struggled with. I had no idea how to articulate them. I was very shameful of most of them because anytime I had articulated them in life, they'd been shunned or dismissed or like, that's not a problem. What are you talking about? And I'm thinking about what about that 22-year-old that really needs accommodations at work but doesn't yet have a label and won't have the right label for another how many years? I was 28 when I was diagnosed. So that's six. Yeah, I can still do maths. (laughs) Six years in the workforce without having the label that would potentially give me the access to accommodations. So this is my thing about people assuming competencies. And, you know, I had in my presentation, like, don't assume competency. And then it was really funny because there was this other presentation that is like, we should always assume people are competent. And I was like, oh, I think we're talking about different things, though. Like, there's assuming someone is capable with support. And then there's assuming that someone is like just inherently capable of doing something. And we're not. We are not. I still to this day cannot have phone conversations because I don't know when your turn is finishing and my turn is starting when I can't see you. Same. And I only realised that during the COVID pandemic when all of a sudden we were having so many more video calls and I was like, hey, this isn't so bad. I'm not as bad at this as I am on the phone. So I no longer phone any of my friends. If I want to talk to them, it's a video call. Amazing. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they're like, oh, I'm in my pyjamas. My hair's all messy. I'm like, whatever. I don't care. I just <laughs> want to be able to see when it's my time to talk. Um, exactly. This isn't about you. And You're your the only one that cares about, about how you need. That's right. <laughs> so I think we need to stop just assuming that people are capable or well, not capable, but, but can achieve something without support. And I know that I probably annoy my staff all the time, but I'll be like, I would like you to do, 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 do. do you know how to do that or would you like some help? And they're like, I'm fine. And I'm like, coolio. But I ask almost obsessively. And so I even when I have new staff start with me, even like on front desk on their first couple of shifts that they buy themselves, I'm like, you don't have to answer the phone if you don't want to. It will go to voicemail and I promise you it won't be an emergency because we don't really have those in paediatric speech pathology. And then you can listen to the voicemail and you can call them back when you know what it's about. I'm like, but don't don't feel like you have to answer it right away. Because I know that like when I first started a job, the thought of answering a phone and not knowing what was going to be on the other end of it was terrifying, terrifying. And it's so easy to actually say to someone, do you know what? Don't worry about doing that yet. Yeah, I love that. And I just think there are so many little accommodations that can be made for people that, and do you know what? Many of the staff just do. They just pick up the phone because it's not a big deal for them because they're not a giant weirdo like me. Yeah, but good on them. Just offer it. For the few that is, you're going to get a staff member that's more productive, that has less sick days, that actually likes their job, that creates an environment at work that's psychologically safe, all the things. There's so many good reasons beyond this simple little adjustment. And it's interesting you say that because this one time I was in a job where I think it was like a grad or something came into the team and I was sort of like, I'll take them under my wing and show them the ropes. And I got this vibe very quickly from this person who was lovely that maybe I was giving them too much help 
because I was kind of treating them like they were me (laughs) and I was giving them so much more help Mm. because so much of my training and support when I was a grad was like, here's some work, go do it. I like no expectation set, no ability to ask stupid questions, uh, just nothing. And so this grad, I was like really walking them through everything and saying, oh, you know, feel free to ask me anything about this or anything about that. Or if you want me to show you how to do this, literally anything. And I very quickly realized that they were not like me (laughs) and they were sort of just like giving me the vibes of really lady. Like, do you think I'm stupid? Yeah. And, and it wasn't That's the other that, thing you got to worry about. Right? Is that no. we're trying to be really yeah. nice and considerate and other people are like, what is wrong with this person? Mm. <laughs> oh, it's a conundrum. But I think there's just that, you know, coming at things from a human element. Yeah. And so, you know, being able to say to someone, I found this really tricky, happy to help you out, you, you know, and then there's that they can ask for help. And I think it's just coming at things just one human to another. And exactly. I feel like there's just... There's just a real lack of that happening and maybe it's because I am in a therapy setting so I'm used to offering support because it's what Mm. I do to people all day, every day. True. That it's just what I do with my staff as well and I've never worked in a setting that isn't like that. So I started at 17, I was an integration aide through to where I am now as a speech pathologist so I've always been in those sorts of learning environments. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, Mm. see I've been – I've done a lot of different things like – I've been a waitress, which was a disaster. Oh, I did one shift. I tried <laughs> oh, once. nice. I worked for three months at a winery and it was so funny because I they hired me and another chick and they basically made us work against each other for like two weeks and then said that from the beginning, we're only going to keep one of you, which is horrible. But luckily she was very nice. And anyway, I won, which is a joke because I don't even know how to make coffee and I don't drink coffee. <laughs> And most of this was like serving lunch and wine and coffee. Um, but I tried very hard mm-hmm. <laughs> and burnt out. you know, people pleaser. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually it was almost helpful having her there because I could watch. She asked silly questions and all of that. And I got to just sit back and pretend that I was more confident than I was, which makes me feel horrible. <laughs> That's really interesting because I think there's this perception that people with autism just don't know what's up with other people and like can't read people or can't. Uh, I am exceptionally good at being who people want me to be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of my success as a clinician is that if you watched me in a session with one family and then watched me in a session with another family, you'd probably see two quite different Francis's if I'm honest. But that's also what got me into trouble at school because as good as I am at reading people and knowing what to give them, I also know what's going to tick them off and, and wind them up and that's what I did at school. But it sounds like you're, that's like what you yeah. were able to do in this situation as well is go, yeah. I'm watching how you're reacting to how this girl's acting and I see that you don't like that so I'm not going to do that or I saw that that worked well so yeah. I want to do more of that. Oh, spot on. And I, it's funny you say that because I think I don't think that we're necessarily worse at reading people. I just think we have a different language of reading people. Like so many neurotypicals, it's like looking at body language and eye contact. For that, that's irrelevant for me. What's the language coming out? What's the mm. – there's so many more. I can't even label it. It's just different, right? I think just I'm different. just really, really egocentric. Yeah. I just realised because I just always assume when people are stressed or annoyed or – It's at you? Me too. Yeah, what did I do? But I don't think that's egocentric. I think that's mm. autistic because auto mm. is self, mm. one, right? And this is why a lot of people can confuse autism with yes. uh, narcissism because they can look outwardly mm. very similar but we have different 
reasons for those behaviors slash being, you know, and you can be autistic and narcissistic. <laughs> I had a parent ask me the other day, they're like, he's really selfish. It's just all about him. When is that going to stop? And I said, he's just autistic. Oh, so, do you know what I said? <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> I said, I still, I said, I was like, fundamentally, like, I was like, I am the most important person to me. Now I don't have children. So, but I am the most important person to me. Yeah. And so anything you say to me, I'm instantly going to think, how does this affect me? I said, why you think he's so selfish is because he hasn't yet learned to hide that from you. And I said, hopefully, I said, because you're his mother, he actually never will because he won't feel the need to put that mask on around you. I said, but at some point he'll probably learn that like those responses are not considered socially acceptable. And you don't like it. He'll start to rein them in a little bit. That's right. That's right. I said, but will that thought process ever change? No, I hate waiting for my turn. So when I'm working on turn taking with kids, I'm like, I get it. Who actually wants to wait their turn? No one. Like do neurotypical people genuinely not have an issue with this? Because I hate it when it's not my turn. Same. I think that's definitely our ADHD. I don't know because I, I – But like a neurotypical people literally just sitting there equally happy being like, it's not my turn and I'm waiting. I, I don't know. Like, surely not. I think we need to ask like an autistic person that doesn't have ADHD because I wonder how much of it – Find which one that is. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is our like uh, impulsivity and impatience – that I think is very connected to ADHD because like I'm so bad at waiting as well and I'm so impatient and to the point that it's actually like it can be dangerous sometimes you know I've been caught like driving with my phone oh yeah yeah and I, I got a warning thank god and it scared the pants off me because more enforcement oh didn't you oh that's <laughs> I got expensive. the 400 fine and the Ford merit points so mine was well before it got to that expense it was mm. But still, it when my phone pings in the car, and these days I have to like try, I, I don't always do this, but I try to put it out of reach or out of sight or on silent so that I'm not even tempted. Because mm. if I hear it ping or I see the light up that I've got a message or anything, I immediately want to check it right now. And I'm driving, so that's illegal. <laughs> yeah. But but that is that that exact process is happening to us every day in all scenarios. So in scenarios where you are driving a heavy vehicle, that is dangerous. Yeah. And I'm, you know, obviously I take very seriously not wanting to cause an accident. I've been hit by a car uh, when I was 23 and I very much get mm. furious at the idea that some people are on their phone and hitting others. And so I absolutely don't do it anymore. But mm. before that became a very obvious problem that was highly raised in society's consciousness, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. And my ADHD brain was like, ooh, exciting. Mm. <laughs> Somebody likes me, <laughs> you know, like it's ridiculous. The time that I did it was so completely absent-minded to the point that, and I'll never forget it, so I emailed someone that I was running late for a meeting. I looked up, I saw a police car to my left and we were in bumper-to-bumper traffic and I waved them in. I said, you know, do you want to go in front of me? And they're like, no, no, that's fine. And then I edged forward and they pulled in behind me and put their siren on and I was like, oh. And then I pulled over and they were like, were you on your phone? And I was like, oh, no. Yes. And they said, is there a good reason for that? And I said, is there? Oh, no. And he was like, no. And I was like, no. But I was so absent-minded about it that I looked up, saw the police car. I was like, oh, you can go in front of me. No worries. And didn't even <laughs> register, like, didn't even have that moment of like, oh, no, I was on my phone. It was just such an automatic response. But then, yes, since then, luckily, cars have come a long way and I do everything voice to the phone. But, you know, even that's, like, dangerously divided attention. Yeah, it's distracting. Yeah. Absolutely. I did want to ask about distractibility and eating. And you did talk earlier about mm-hmm. how you want to be left alone when you're eating your KFC mm-hmm. from your partner. And I find that really interesting because 
one of the things I talk to a lot of autistic people about who have lived or living experience with eating disorders is that they really hate when they've had inpatient treatment being forced to eat with a bunch of other people. Mm. And I relate to that heavily. I've never had inpatient treatment because I'm in a large body, but that, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I went to boarding school for a couple of years in high school and absolutely hated eating in a dining hall to the point where I didn't eat lunch every day Mm. because a morning tea was not sitting down in the dining hall. You went, got food and kept going. It was like on the run. So I didn't want to sit at a table with six girls that I lived with Mm. and talk about rubbish while I was trying to focus on my food. I don't even, I think there's so many layers to this that I haven't even unpacked, but the the element of food distractibility and eating and social pressure, I don't even know what my question is, but I'm just curious to know your thoughts on those intersectionalities. I, again, you've made me have, like, you've brought something to my awareness that wasn't yeah. currently, which is I that, do that I like to eat by myself at home. Same. At work, though, I sit in a lunchroom with my team and I eat without a problem, but I wonder whether that's a masking. Yeah. And I'm so masked that I don't eat even realise because there's no, there's no other option. Mm-hmm. And because I'm really, really big on workplace culture yes. that I don't – you put that above the need to be. Yeah, like I like, so we all have like, I shut the clinic for an hour and we have lunch all at the same time. Amazing. So that there's that, you know, community element of it. Yeah. And so I do go in and I do I do eat with my team and I've never thought about it. But here, when given a chance at home, I will go to a room and eat by myself. So I'll eat at my desk or I will. Yeah. 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 yeah and I also wonder like how much of that with the team is also potentially you know, you're so invested in hearing what they're all up to. And, you know, it, it is, I mean, I'm guessing it's sort of your special interest <laughs> is your job. Oh, um, well and truly, yes. So like there's that element too where you you know that it's not going to be you sitting with a bunch of people that you don't know too well, have to do small talk with mm. to an extra extent and have nothing in common, like that a lot of socialising is out in the world. I think also there's different sensory stuff at home, I think, or and maybe because it's the ends of the day, I'm a little bit more Oh, yeah, and you also hit, you're, you're out of spoons and you're... Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I'm much more aware of like the sensory and the noise and things, but I think, yes, it's the end of the day when I'm tired, yeah. Yeah, when I think about it, I think um, it's so complex, right? You, you just can't even pull it apart, but I love to try. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the ADHD part of my brain is like part of my brain. My brain is ADHD. You know, the distractibility aspect is there. So when I'm focusing on like masking and socializing, it's really hard for me to focus on eating and hunger signals and chewing and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So I'll eat my meal and I won't even remember eating it. I hate that. Yeah. My, do you know what happens to me all the time is yeah. when I pick up my coffee cup to drink what I'm sure is the last mouthful of coffee and it is gone. Yeah, and you don't I remember having the last bit. I'm gutted. I am, my niece, who I would say is likely ADHD, yeah, yeah, the first yeah. time I ever gave her KFC, how's that for me spreading my disease? Um, I love it. I love it. She's three. Yeah. And... I got her a go bucket, which she was very, very excited about. Yeah. But she turned around to me, Auntie Frances, you ate my chicken nugget. And I was like, I didn't. Like, I swear I didn't. You didn't remember. No, no, I actually didn't eat it. No, she ate it and she didn't remember. She ate it and she didn't remember. Oh, gotcha. But, like, she was so mad at me. And because she'd just been, like, chowing down and looking around and, you know, yeah, and she was sure, and she was adamant that I had taken it. I was like, I didn't. I promise, I didn't. And you related heavily. <laughs> yeah, yes, but 
I was like, I, like, I get why you're upset. Like I would be upset. Um, and I swear it was you that ate it. She did not believe, like I could not convince her that I had oh eaten my chicken goodness. nugget. So to this day, she oh, still thinks so I ate chicken nugget. funny. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> Auntie Francis. How dare you? Yeah, you ate dare chicken you? Oh, that's so good. So good. I um, it just reminds me. Actually, no, this is taking me way back to the start of this conversation, where something mm. you said reminded me of the fact that you just brought up a child again has brought this up. But I, I went, I took my son to a like a daycare play date thing. There was these adorable little girls playing in a sandpit, and they must have been five, and they were lovely. They were so cute. She was building some kind of like snowman. I think they were doing Elsa themed sand pit play. I don't know, but. We were just chatting casually and, you know, it's kids. So I'm like, well, what do I have in common with kids? What did I like talking about a kid? Oh, I liked talking about food because food was delicious. And back then it didn't have all the stuff attached to it. So I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> something, 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 chocolate. And I'm like, oh, do you like chocolate? I love chocolate. And she's like, no. I'm like, what's your favorite food? And she's like, yeah, I like whole foods. And I literally wanted to die. <laughs> like you are literally killing my soul right now. I didn't even meet her mother. I have no, I, like, I'm so glad I didn't because I'm not sure I could have held back going to town. I, there's nothing wrong with liking Whole Foods. Let's just put that out there. But 90% sure that this little girl did not love Whole Foods over any kind of quote unquote naughty food <laughs> <laughs> that she'd clearly had messages from her parents or mm. people around her that this was something that had good moral value to like and this was not. And that just pierced me off something I'm so conscious of going into parenting is how do I not create hang-ups around food oh you and all of us <laughs> I mean I'm just sitting here thinking at what point did the cookie monster start saying cookies are a sometimes food because yes. I know that that became a thing on Sesame Street but I'm like mm-hmm. when did that come I think in it, what? it must have been the mid 90s or something you know just all these yeah. messages yeah yeah I think you're right mm-hmm. something that I'm interested to ask you about um yeah is oh, I like this. Yeah, because I, you know, we've talked about lots of things around, you know, disordered eating and yes. difficult relationships with food, but I have one that I actually don't know where it fits and so I'm interested to see whether it's something that's a shared thing. Oh, okay. I am Hit me. ridiculously particular about food contamination or food being past its use by date. Ooh. Are you, is that... Yes. Like, so the at work, if the milk's a day past its use by date, other yeah, people I can't do it. And my husband will sniff it and, like, nah, and be like, it's fine. Nah, <laughs> yes. No, it's not. And they'll be like, it's best before. And I'll be like, no, sorry. I'm like, that means not after that's right <laughs> right yeah I'm yeah, the same yeah. and I wonder how much of that is our rules-based thinking because <laughs> my husband does it all the time with milk and don't reheat food more than once yes I actually don't even like reheated food <laughs> like especially reheated chicken I can't eat it but most reheated food I don't really like which is a problem because that's a way that we can manage our executive function is batch cooking and reheating yeah. and when you don't like reheated food that's a problem I think where mine has become really problematic is that if I have um say we've got bell peppers or something mm-hmm. that I like mm-hmm. and then a jar is pulled out of the fridge because we're making pizzas and the lid is taken off the jar and the bell pepper is furry I'm going to struggle to eat bell peppers again in the future <laughs> after having witnessed that I'm like oh yuck yes That's a really interesting point because I think this is quite common with our autistic brains and developing or having ARFID because it can literally be 
and and I've actually I've spoken to a few health professionals about this. It goes from being safe to risky, like right? just in that one minute. And it can it can ruin more than that food. Mm. It can literally ruin any food like it. Other foods or, in oils, in jars, yes. in fridges. Like if the oil level is not now high enough, I'm worried about yeah. Yeah. Whereas my partner will be like, it's preserved, it's fine, it, it it'll be fine for two years. And I'll be like, it says consume within five days of opening. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so that's not just a me thing no that's not not a you thing that well I mean I'm, I'm not saying that that's an autism thing but it's definitely not just a you thing <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing yeah. is with food you know how we categorize food in like fruit veggies protein mm. something that so I've started seeing a speech ther- therapist myself huh. yeah which is mind-blowing for me yeah. because I literally didn't know anything about them and thought that they just help with lisps which I don't have uh, so why would I see common one misconception. yeah I know mm. I've had many of those trust me <laughs> one of the things I see her about is starting to dive into do I want her help in the food situation which my current standing on that is no <laughs> but she's the one that made me realize there's a different way to categorize food. And this is probably going to sound ridiculous, right? But she was talking about crunchy foods and soft foods and mm-hmm. and literally not caring about any nutrient value or any health value and literally just talking about texture mm. and flavor. Mm. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think you could categorize like that because diet culture has taught me the only categorization is calories, macros, yeah. and good and bad food. <laughs> Like it just blew my mind when she brought it up because I was like, oh, wow. Mm. And it also made me start to reflect on my like food stimming and what I do and don't prefer and avoid and all of those things. That's one of my strengths at work is when we get, uh, because we often take, we get parents to, because most of the kids that we, we are doing any sort of food therapy with, they've got a list that's so restricted that the parents are like, we'll be like, can you just note down for a week what the child eats? And they're like, hang on, let me do it now. It's wheat fixed. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and like my strength is that I can be like, they're all salty or like they're all, you know, and I can I can group those and go, cool. Amazing. Amazing. That's what we've got to chain from. Um Oh, that's yeah. so cool. The other thing um, we were going to do was, I guess, exposure therapy. Mm. And she was she was starting to talk to me about how getting a plate and putting like seven foods on it. And that really triggered me. And I, I talked to my psychologist and I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> because, well, and then my point with not seven. I don't know if it was seven. I think it was five or seven. I, it was a lot. Still, it was a lot. And I'm like, I don't even yeah. think I have seven edible foods in my house. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. because half my food's like off or not what I want to yeah. eat. And not that I want to get out all at once. I Like, yeah. No. And yeah, the executive function of, of preparing that, cleaning up after that, putting away. Like, so side no, note, no, something happen. that has worked really, really well for me that, again, my lovely supportive partner actually implemented, I didn't figure it out for myself. Have you seen those kids bento boxes the lunch boxes oh yeah 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 I have one of those right yeah and when I don't want to eat which is normally interpreted it's more when I can't decide what I want because I'm too dysregulated and I'm too far gone and I need to eat but I'm all like oh I don't know and she's like do you want this and I'm like no do you want no 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 Mm -hmm. She goes, I know you need a bento. And literally my bento will have, she'll put it together and it'll have like, because they're tiny little sections, it'll have like three or four pretzels, some little bits of cheese, some snow peas, maybe some Skittles in the middle. And so, and then I sit down with this bento box and 
I don't have to eat at all. But normally once I start, because I sort of pick absentmindedly and I can go, oh, a bit of sweet, oh, a bit of salty, I can balance it, I can, it's all crunch or, and I can just select the bits that I want. They're not touching, which is super, super, super safe. Uh, When I say safe, I mean like emotionally safe. Yes. And then if at any point I've had enough, I shut the lid and I clip it. I can come back to it later. Like it's just so easy. So autistic friendly. <laughs> right. But it's not a meal as most people would, would think about having a meal. But at that point in time, I just need to eat. Yeah. And this is the switching the definition. That's right. I just need to eat. And I actually get probably a broader range of like nutritional value. I was going to say, it sounds like a very balanced meal. <laughs> yep. But it's like, it's my raw vegetables yeah. instead of like snow peas in a stir fry, unsafe. Snow peas in my bento box raw, crunchy. Yep, that's cool. That's fine. I can do that. That's amazing. Yeah, and so, yeah, it's just about changing that expectation and having this really safe go-to that actually makes eating, we joke, but it's like how emotional food is for me that myself and my eight-month-old niece both do like a dance when we're eating something that we really like. I love that. Um, I love it. And I'm never going out of that. Like, so. I hope you never do. You know, and (laughs) whenever I order KFC and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And my partner, like, I can't believe you get so, she'll be like, look at you. Look how happy you are. And I'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, And it's just, it's just pure joy. And so, you know, to be able to recognize when like you're having those struggles and go, do you know what? I've got a plan. And that is amazing. Um, Yeah. That is so cool. Oh, my God. I hope people listening go and use that. I'm going to go and use that. I'm going to go buy a bento box. Bento box dinner. That's so good. Yeah, I love it. I love it. The other thing that that reminds me of is with the food touching thing, when I first heard about it, you know, like I feel like the the thing that comes to mind is what, you know, the stereotypical little autistic boy that, has to have a plate with three different sections and they're all completely separate, very bland, very plain food, like can't have anything touching ever, which is like the most stereotype version you can think of. Probably does happen, Mm. but I'm sure most of us are somewhere more in the middle. Mm. I can have food touch and often do. My touching issues come in when like one's hot, one's cold, and I don't want them to change each other's temperature Mm -hmm. or... Texture for me. So if there's something that's going to run onto something crunchy yeah 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 but if that happens I don't wig out but I will get my fork and I will separate them I will do what I can to prevent more of it happening and I will probably eat the ones that are slightly ruined first so that I can then enjoy the intact ones yes and it's over with and it's not gotten to the point where it's that bad yet yeah yeah (laughs) yeah same oh my god that's so funny so these are like little processes that we've put in place yeah because it's not appropriate for us to have a divided plate, apparently. Yeah, apparently that's too it. weird. Me too. I'd love to have it separate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, and that's, it's not all foods, so people think it's it's everything. No. But, like, I, there are lots of foods that I think are kind of meant to go together and we'll have together. But, yeah, there are just some things, like if I'm having some sort of, like, pastry something with, yeah. like, steamed vegetables, I don't want my pastry thing getting soggy because... Exactly. Uh, well, who does want that? But I guess it just... No, exactly. Who does want that? But some people are just not phased by it, whereas it like really ruins our meal Mm. and our stress levels. And really the key message here is changing your expectations around what's normal, both 
as a professional treating autistic people and as an autistic person or parent of one, so much of our masking and shame comes down to the world not accepting our differences, us not accepting our differences because we've internalised ableism and all that jazz, when so much of our issues would be solved if we just accepted them. Yes, absolutely, because they're non-issues. And I think there's so much challenging the status quo that sort of needs to happen. And I tell this story quite often and my partner knows that I tell it, but very early on in our relationship, she would want to like abruptly give me a hug and I would like sort of lean backwards a little bit because I'd be like, oh, oh, Um, like I'd be sort of taken aback by it. And then because of that, I would get kind of like ticklish or sort of like overly, like I think it would sort of trigger whatever that's you know sensory sort of like I was in that sort of flight mode then that all of my senses were heightened so I actually didn't want to hug then after I'd been startled and my partner would say well I just want to give you a hug I I just love you so much and I'll be like cool I don't want a hug and she'd be like but I'm your partner I want to give you a hug and I would be like why is your desire to give me a hug more important than my wish not to be hugged and I remember when I said that to her she was like yes (laughs) and I was like yes it's like hug consent (laughs) well that's right but just this like just because one is normal again air quotes normal doesn't make it more important than someone who Mm. wants whatever's different oh I love that so much and so yeah meal times whether it's having them together whether it's having a divided plate versus a whole plate whether it's having breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast who cares I love breakfast for dinner yeah um Yeah, and I actually do do dinner for breakfast as well. Yeah, I've been same. eating steak for breakfast. Yep. So, you know, again, it's because we go with what we feel as opposed to what's expected. I've never understood not eating lollies in the morning. No, I, neither. I what a stupid rule. like, how could you do that, eat that in the morning? I'm like, chocolate is just as delicious at 8 a.m., let me tell you. Yeah, um, I agree. And I don't, I think because I don't conform in so many ways, it confuses me that some people don't even realise that they're conforming. It's almost like they think, well, I don't want lollies in the morning. And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) Or you've just listened to the rhetoric you've been told your whole life and not questioned it. That's right. Yes, which is that we don't eat lollies in the morning. Yeah. And so I think you're right. I think it's, it's assessing why we're doing things. And if it's causing distress to someone, whether it's ourselves or someone that we love, yeah. why are we doing it? Like, is there actually a a purpose that it's... Exactly. I also eat a lot with my fingers. Oh yeah, me too. Because I don't like metal cutlery as well. So, and I I just, you know, you're a speechy, so I have to tell you this. And it's totally related to food. Mm. Um, So something that's really, really just blown my mind has been, this is going to sound terrible, but anyway, no shame, no shame. Uh, So I am a grub. No, no, no shame there. Mm-hmm. I drop, I, I literally, I am a pro at stain removal just because I can't go a day without <laughs> dropping food on my clothes. Um, mm. And mostly when I'm trying to get it into my mouth, you know, I'm just praxic and all that stuff. <laughs> not the point. But yeah. I also really struggle to eat with my mouth closed. And it's one of my husband's biggest pet peeves because mm. he thinks it's so impolite and he's... <laughs> He tells me about it all the time and I, I'm not phased by it unless I'm out in public or he's around and I know that he's it's bugging him. Does he think it's impolite or does the noise annoy him? No, it's it's the impolite, which okay. is, right. yeah, no. And that's only because like he was brought up by mm. parents who really, really valued courtesy and politeness. So like he would never, yeah. he would never even complain if his meal was bad because that's impolite. And like yeah. he won't let me yeah. use a phone 
you know, in a movie theater, even if the movie hasn't started, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it, it annoys yeah. me because some of those rules don't seem, or they don't seem to outweigh the need for yeah. doing things for me, but anyway, it's fine. Um, so this is just one of those rules and, and it's something that we've just laughed about over time, but I started seeing a speech pathologist and she did an oral assessment. So, mm. you know, checking my mouth out and uh, <laughs> we've worked out and this is literally blowing my mind. And I think it's so relevant because it, it goes to the thing where you have to look deeper than the behavior because there's mm. usually a cause and a reason. Sometimes that reason is changeable and sometimes it's not. Mm. <laughs> and acknowledging those differences is so important. But I'll tell you the example. Probably should have started with that. Anyway, <laughs> so what happened was we realized that I can't breathe properly through my right nose. Yeah, you're nodding because you knew this, didn't you, when you were hearing it? (laughs) (laughs) So I can't breathe. And and my brothers actually had, one of my brothers have had nose surgery because he's never been able to breathe through his nose. So it must be some kind of genetic. Yeah, yeah. So I can't breathe through my right nostril. (laughs) And and so we've worked out that the reason I eat with my mouth open is because I can't breathe. (laughs) And two, it's also the reason why I avoid things like salads because, I mean, there's a few reasons why I avoid salads because, and I do eat some salads, but a big reason why I don't like salads and things like salads is because they take a lot of chewing. And when you're doing a lot of chewing, you can't breathe, right? So I've put the hating salads down to me being an unhealthy, undisciplined person mm-hmm. when that's diet culture speaking and rubbish. <laughs> Actually, it's my breathing and sensory issues. I can breathe fine and I still don't like salads. Yeah, that's fair. I was going to say, it's not, I don't think it's just the breathing. Salad's the worst. I don't understand how people eat salad. Neither, but, neither. Um, I've got two staff members that will have salad as like a whole meal. Like it doesn't even have chicken in it or anything. But anyway. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's right. You've got to check first. And that's, again, that kind of falls into what I was like when I say don't assume competency. That's assuming competency yes because it's never been checked and I've literally had I've had my tonsils out I've had multiple sets of grommets meaning I've seen an ENT multiple times oh my gosh how did people not realize that you had enlarged abdominals right but yet this is a theme throughout all my health issues is things Mm. that are obvious sort of Mm. are never addressed and so I'm never getting the full picture to be fair speaking now as a clinician you don't sound hypo-nasal. That's true. So it's that's probably true. it's only one side that's impeded, that it wasn't picked up clinically, but it still should have been investigated. It's always check first. Yeah, no, I agree. Now people are going to be listening and being like, does she sound nasal? She doesn't, guys. Let me <laughs> no, I mean, I think I do sound a little nasally, but it's, I don't think it's obvious to others. Hopefully not. <laughs> people seem to listen to me, so whatever. Not that you don't listen to people who are nasally. What? <laughs> We're going to edit that bit out, guys. Don't. Where did my mind go with that? <laughs> yeah. It just blows my mind because what I continue to learn seeing all these therapists and specialists is that, I don't know, I feel like am I ever going to hit the point where I'm not learning new things about myself? And the question is, would other people, if they engaged in the self-reflection and did the work and did the therapy, would they discover some of the same things? That's true. I'm one of four children and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the impaired one, you know. I'm the one that has the diagnosis. I'm the one that's been through the mental health stuff. I'm the oh, one Me too. But I say to my partner, and if any of my brothers are listening, which slim chance, yeah. um, I would say, is it just that I'm the only one that's reflected and owned it? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, am I actually the only autistic one in the family? Or am I the only one that's actually, you know, looked into it and put in the effort? Because it's not easy to get a diagnosis. No. It takes effort to get an adult diagnosis. It takes convincing 
for people. I don't know why. Yeah, and men are so accepted for their differences. So there's a gender issue. Absolutely. My brothers are engineers. Oh, which is. Yeah. Um, yeah. An industry that would definitely not have a problem with autism. And, and this is the thing, you know, I have people in my family that are very, very, very successful in their careers and have been very high up in organizations very quickly. And so it's appropriate to walk into a room talking and expect people to listen to you because you're the boss. Yeah. And I go, actually, because we know that some of these behaviors are actually useful behaviors, you know, um, being autistic so true. has a number of really, really useful skills, you know, associated with it that that we can excel at. And I think, you know, those are celebrated sometimes in the corporate world, in the high up management positions. Absolutely. And people are just sort of thought to be gruff or thought to be, you know, hard on people. And so those traits are celebrated, whereas in females, less so, and in different sort of work environments. Health profession, yep. Celebrated, that's right. So like I'm not expected to be blunt or dominant or single-minded in any way as a health professional. So those things are going to be celebrated. If I was CEO of some company where I was making big decisions. Oh, you'd be smashing it. You bet being assertive, you bet that's right. And I actually think that's why I run my own business. Yeah. I couldn't work for, I I tried to work for someone else that didn't work for me. Yeah. I I actually, I heard Christy Forbes speak of this recently. It was at the Yellow Ladybugs conference and she she mentioned in, I think, her panel session about not being able to work for someone else. And I'm slowly coming to realize that I fit that category and I don't like following other people's rules <laughs> and, and other people's priorities. I, I am I am a very efficient, very highly effective, successful person when I'm the boss. Mm. I have way more admin staff than I probably should. But that's an accommodation for you, right? But it's because I recognise that I have shiny ball syndrome. Shiny <laughs> ball I have ideas that are like shiny ball. And so I can be like in the middle of doing something. So I start a project and then it's shiny ball because I've had this other idea and then I'm I'm off, I'm after that shiny ball. And so I need to be able to dump something and go to someone, ah, can you finish that? Can you pick that up? Because I'm off chasing this other thing. Yeah. And it's taken a long time, but because I've put procedures in place, that's working really well for my business because we're constantly churning out new programs, new, so you know, and the clients love it because it's always fresh, it's always new, we're always doing something different. It's actually just me pinging. Oh, uh, see, you're like an innovator. It's amazing. Yeah, it's my ADHD pinging from place to place. But I've been able to harness that and put the supports in to mean that the follow through is still happening. It's just not me, it's somebody else. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I think you're right. There's so many layers to that from, I don't think it's just PDA. I think it's executive function. I think it's, you know, ability to be creative. So for me, the thing that's really, really coming to light in my own mind and self-reflection in this space, which I, again, I'm I'm in the middle of that process. So I, I, I worry sometimes putting this out into the world because we all evolve, we all change, and I'm sure I'll come back at some point and say, oh, I interpreted that wrong or I'm changing that now, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm. You reminded me, though, because one of the big things that I – and I even have a post-it note on my desk here that says autistic because I was trained always person with autism. And I actually say to people, like, I have autism. Um, and I have people, like, clients that pick me up and they're like, autistic, and I'm like, oh, sorry, I refer to myself as having autism I will try to refer to you as autistic but I I get so nervous about it because I don't want people in our community to be angry at me for the way that I do you know what I mean and so that's the sort of stuff that I really like sort of like tear myself up about and I'm trying so hard to shift to autistic 
to the point that I write it on a post-it note in front of me to be like <laughs> autistic, autistic friends are say autistic, not has autism or with autism. And I've probably, I think I've said that during this podcast. So for anyone listening, it's not meant to be offensive or upsetting to anyone. So I apologise if it is. It's just a throwback. Um, yeah. And I think because it doesn't bother me, it's like I don't necessarily register it, but I am making a conscious effort. But, yeah. Oh, honestly, you're doing so well and, and it is hard and I think it's important to note that, you know, you're, you are a speech pathologist and you have traditional university training in the medical model, in the pathology paradigm and it's very hard to unlearn that kind of wiring and you've been told for many, many years that, you know, person first language is preferred and to use with autism or has autism over the now more commonly preferred identity first language of I am autistic, they're autistic, they're an autistic person. There was actually a recent study done by an autistic academic and there was something like, and it was over 11,000 respondents. And this survey looked into so many, so many aspects of autism, but one of the things it did ask about was language choices and, you know, the it highlighted that even back in 2015, which is not that long ago, that type of language wouldn't have made anyone bat an eyelid. But that's the thing with movements like the neurodiversity movement. The standards often change too fast for the wider population to keep up. And I mean, you're not the wider population because you work in this space, but that's even more complex because you were trained, it was drilled into you that that other way of using language was correct. So it's kind of hard to undo that to be able to keep up, even though we know that you fundamentally agree with the neurodiversity paradigm and the concept of what this language represents. From memory, it was something like 91% of the autistic people surveyed were happy with identity first language and less than 20% were happy with person first language to say that they're a person with autism, um, like you are trying to say less, um, which is which is great, but hard. Uh, but I think it's important to remember here that context matters and, you know, it only takes listening to you for five minutes to know that you do align with the neurodiversity movement and what identity first language is trying to achieve and your lack of using identity first language occasionally is more of a reflection on your training and the health system and medical model not a reflection on your beliefs or views but it is hard and it's a sensitive issue (laughs) And I think it's it's what you're saying, though. It's it's all about context as well. So, like, you've got to listen to, to what the person is saying and if they, you know, it's one thing to sort of correct someone, you know, politely and sort of, but also, you know, you can also just trust that someone is trying. I had a really delightful conversation with um, a parent the other day about neurodiversity, neurodivergence and neurodivergent because I've, I've been thinking about it, right? So I've been thinking about this and I go, we we moved to this neurodiversity, right? Which is that we're all different neurotypes and it was all encompassing of all the different neurotypes. Yes. And then all of a sudden I started hearing neurodivergent, which put us back into a disordered model where we have diverged from what's acceptable again. And 
So I've been like, wait, hang on. I loved when we were saying that we were neurodiverse. Everybody's neurodiverse. And I was like, yes, but that's the point. Like that is the point is that we're all neurodiverse. And isn't that what we're asking for is to be seen as as different but equal, right? Whereas divergent, I feel like is putting us back on this like, well, we've diverged from where we're meant to be. But then this parent, I said to her, I said, what do you think about it? Because I know that she has very strong opinions on things. And I said, I ask because when I'm forming an opinion, I like to, I like to hear what other people are thinking about it. And she said to me, which was really interesting because this has been a mum who well before, you know, neurodiversity affirming things came into practice was like, do not teach my child eye contact, do not blah, 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 blah. Amazing. She is fine how she is, do not change her. And early on in my career, that was quite threatening. And I love that we've got to a point where we actually have really like candid conversations about it. But she said, and you could have knocked me over, she said, well, no, I I want it to be neurodivergent because... To say that we're all neurodiverse doesn't acknowledge that we are disabled. We're not differently abled. We are disabled. Things are harder for us than they are for other people. Things are blah, blah, blah. And I went, yep, yes, I see that. And if I don't agree with that viewpoint, if I fundamentally don't believe in things being more difficult, then why am I giving people therapy? Um, And so that was really interesting for me. And I said to her, I said, I can agree with that because one of the things that I really struggle with is when people say to their children, autism is your superpower. And I feel like saying to them, you live with it. You live with it for a day and tell me it's my superpower because do you know what? It's actually really hard and it's really exhausting and it really sucks sometimes. And that's not to say that I'm down on being autistic. I love who I am and I love like my autistic friends and you know, we're so delightfully us, but I wish that I could take away my hangups with food. I wish I could take away my sensory sensitivities. I wish, I I do wish I didn't have those things that are part of being autistic. And so Mm -hmm. I don't love everything there is about autism. You shouldn't have to. And it is not my superpower. That's right. And so I can see where this mum who was so like my child is fine is now saying, well, I want to be also recognised as being disabled because don't you dare minimise my experience. And I'm like, I see how we as a community have now swung back to that because we want people to recognise that things are hard for us as well as recognising mm-hmm. that we're people and that we're valid and our experiences are valid. And it's just this really hard, and it's all the trauma. It is a yeah. trauma response in that we don't want condescension. So we do want to be seen as equals, but we also want to then be acknowledged that things are hard sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, first of all, I think that that mother is a legend and well ahead of her time. So when you see her, tell her I think she's awesome. I mean, yeah, it's a complex area and Commonly when it's spoken about, it's simplified into whether people think it's a superpower or a disease. <laughs> and the reality is it's actually somewhere in the middle. I don't even think that's technically right. But what I'm trying to say is it's neither here nor there. It's not about saying that you love everything about being autistic and how it's amazing. And it's not about saying you don't like it and it's a pain. Both of those statements are accurate in their own ways. I like to use my partner as an example because he's a giant. He's six foot seven and by far the tallest person I've ever met. And I've literally counted how many people I've met that are either the same height as him or higher in the last 12 years of our relationship. And it's four. (laughs) And I'm not saying I've met the world, but 
He's one of the tallest people I know. That's two meters for metric lovers. Um, Now, there are things about his height that are really helpful. He can see over people when we go to any event. He can reach things at the top of the cupboards. What else? You know, from a young age, he could go on rides that short people couldn't. Uh, He has never been ID'd, like ever, because, you know, height clearly equals age. And then there's also a lot of really annoying things. Some would even say painful things about being his height. He frequently has to duck to get through doors. He doesn't fit most furniture. Clothing is difficult to get because it's usually too short. And yeah, there's so many things. Uh, the reason I use this example is that height is innately who he is. It's it's a trait. It's a characteristic. It's his identity. And similarly, being autistic is that for me. I am autistic in every aspect of my life, whether I like it or not. And some parts of being autistic is amazing. And some parts of being autistic is not. (laughs) Now, obviously, the height example is a bit simplistic and not quite the same thing. But I think it's a good representation of how it's an innate characteristic that you can't change. And today, in 2022, you can't not be autistic anymore. If you're autistic, you're autistic. And you can't change that. You can reduce some of the not-so-nice parts of being autistic, usually by creating a supportive environment, which isn't just sensory accommodations, but also having people around you that understand you and embrace you and allow for your differences. That's right. But even if our environment was set up, like even if we made all of the environmental accommodations, I still think there would be things that would be tricky and uncomfortable. Absolutely. The issue is, is that the environment's not even close to accommodating us. So how would we ever know? So I guess it's more about saying let's try and adapt the environment to support the autistic person rather than saying let's change the autistic person to be less autistic, which essentially is, you know, similar to conversion therapy and I guess the premise of what ABA was based on and what causes us to mask and pretend that we're not autistic, which as we know causes so much harm and so much trauma. So it's more just about saying, well... Let's be practical here. How can we support the autistic person while doing the least amount of harm and the most amount of good? And that's not black and white, as you know. <laughs> I just, it's been bothering me for a, like a long time. And I think it's because of my, my interest in language and also my fear of getting it wrong. Because I think I've had big fear about speaking as a speech pathologist and big fear as, of speaking as an autistic person because. I know that those two population groups don't actually always agree with each other. Um, And I know that there are some people that think that some of the work that I do, they would think is not neurodiverse affirming. And I try and hold this middle ground where I go, the world is not ideal for my autistic community. And I'm going to help my autistic community get through it as best as I can, because I can't change the world instantly. I am working at it. So I'm trying to do my advocacy stuff and my education stuff, but I'm also working with individuals that are living in this imperfect world. And so I do have to do some of my therapy stuff that helps them get by in a neurotypical dominated world. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I I think you're doing great. And, you know, besides being pedantic about language, what concerns me more is what's beneath the language. And recently I've seen a trend where more health professionals are using neurodiversity-affirming language without actually being neurodiversity-affirming and in a, like, major red flags kind of way. Uh, And, you know, that really upsets me because I know there's so many people out there that wouldn't know how to look for those signs and would see that neurodiversity-affirming language and think, oh, they must be good. And that's a vulnerable population. So my issue is definitely more about (laughs) the people doing the harmful practices. Absolutely. Um, I struggle with that with my, like my peer group, I suppose, when I see posts that they put on Facebook, like we're running neurodiverse affirming social groups, come and do the, you know, social detective program. And I'm like, that's not what, no, what? Like, no, guys. And I feel like it really takes away from when people are trying to, because like, I know the work that we've put in as a clinic to redesign entire curriculums to get rid of anything not neurodiverse affirming is a huge amount of work and then other people just put this banner on their Facebook that says they're neurodiverse affirming and I'm like you're actually giving everyone a really bad like a bad name because when a client goes and they experience that that's all speech pathologists written off and for me to say that I'm neurodiverse affirming when you've said it it now means nothing because you actually weren't you were just using it as a way to continue to book clients Uh, just kills me it's so unethical and like I just hope that the more education and information that we can put out there helping people understand you know what to look for and what to avoid those people won't get away with it hopefully so something that I think about quite a lot is there was a while where I was really pushing hard for raising awareness about you know what autism looks like in women and minority groups and 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 pushing for diagnosis and such. And I'm not not doing that, but there's a layer now where I'm more focused on identification, whether it, like even self-identification because diagnosis is so inaccessible mm-hmm. and even though it's, you know, still necessary if you want supports like NDIS, I think there's an element where how are we going to identify those of us who are autistic but never meet the criteria until we are beyond breaking point because it's so deficit focused, but still need that earlier support so we don't have to break to get help. You know what I mean? This is like ties into this struggle that I am having, Annie, that I can't tell you how much this is killing me at the moment, but I write those reports for people to get NDIS funding. I cannot write them to be neurodiverse affirming. No, because they have to be so horrible. Because then you Mm -hmm. don't get funding. And I have to use things like delayed pragmatic Mm -hmm. skills, whereas I'm like, you don't have delayed pragmatic skills. You have autistic pragmatic skills. Yeah, exactly. You're actually doing quite well and you're growing beautifully into our culture. Well done you is what I want to say. (laughs) But I have to say like this child has impaired conversational reciprocity and it makes me sick to my stomach. And It makes me sick to read them. Yes, but... I, I don't know what to do because I want to advocate for these people to get their funding. But you have to do that 
right? And so, you know, I preface it all with every parent. I go, I've written this horrible report about your child and I'm sorry, please don't read it. Yes. <laughs> because it's just a letter to the government that is essentially please give us money yeah. so that we can. But like half of my job is undoing the trauma I know that that's causing. Yes, but I'm <laughs> I'm like perpetuating it. And so I would I love know. to be like, no, I'm not doing it. But to do but that would can't. be to removing supports for all of these families. Yeah. Not until NDIS catches up, which is yeah. going to take Yeah, and so it just mm-hmm. kills me. And I worry about yeah. who reads those reports. Like Same. I mean, I read them about myself as an adult because I don't have a parent caring for me and I'm mm. on NDIS and mm. I literally have to like, most of the time these days I don't read them because and, and I know my therapists well enough that they'll be like, yeah, don't read this. Like, <laughs> But I worry that they'll fall into the hands of someone who doesn't know me who will be like, is that how she talks about autism? Wow. Like that's a worry for me as a professional because it yeah, doesn't, yeah. it goes against everything I believe in. Yeah, but you don't have a choice. Like you really don't. You can be the most <laughs> neurodiversity affirming healthcare professional, but if you don't do that, you're costing your clients very much life-saving disability support and it's not your fault you have to do that it's the system's fault I wonder if I could put in like like just a thing at the bottom that says like this report is not neurodiverse affirming however it is written to meet the funding criteria like so that it's like I know this and anyone reading this please you could do that like yeah actually yeah yeah. because at least then it's bringing it to the attention I mean awareness yeah. to the I mean they might not even notice it well. but it's like it's almost like a legal um the disclaimer exactly yeah exactly. yeah um that's really interesting mm. I feel like we need to do a submission to the disability royal commission together <laughs> I'm already writing yes. one on behalf of eating disorders for autistic people <laughs> I gave a quote to yellow ladybugs so I was included in their submission yeah cool but, cool yeah yeah anyway I literally truly could talk to you all day but I should probably let us both go to sleep <laughs> Thank yes. you so much for coming on the show, it Francis. To meet you. It was so good to e-meet you. yeah, meet you exactly. Uh, even though I could easily type with you all day, all day long. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on and and being so vulnerable and sharing your story because I just know that so many people are going to resonate and these conversations really do just need to happen and we need to we need to be shedding light on an area that is kept so often in the dark. Uh, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No worries. I, I feel like I've learned a lot. So, so know, good. If, that, if, if I've learned from <laughs> your half of the conversation, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, other people are going to learn a lot as well. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, yeah, no, I absolutely appreciate it. And thank you so much for taking up the challenge of, you know, opening up discussion in this space because, you know, I'm still, I'm still looking. I'm still looking for my therapist that understands. So that's, that's really amazing what you're doing. So thank you. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that conversation and wow, just so powerful. So I have some exciting news that some of you may already be aware of, especially if you're already a longtime Francis fan. The day after our conversation, which was two months ago, Francis put her money where her mouth is and went online and posted this. I'm going to read it out to you. For some time now, I, as a neurodivergent clinician leading a team, have felt uncomfortable standing so strongly as an advocate for neurodiversity affirming practices whilst continuing to produce terribly deficit-based reports for assessments and funding applications. I am pleased to inform my speech tree community that going forward, 
all documents produced in our clinic will include the statement below. I'm still not okay with writing these reports, but until the system changes, they are a necessary step for our clients to receive support. And the statement is, the speech tree acknowledges that the following document contains deficit-based and non-neurodiversity-affirming language and themes. We regret that this may cause or contribute to trauma or feelings of shame. The current education and medical systems continue to allocate funding using a deficit-based model. This document has been produced to ensure our client can receive every support they may be eligible for based on educational or medical criteria. How cool is that? For real. I bloody love that woman. And I hope that any allied health professional listening to this follows her lead because we are stronger together and the louder we get, the harder it will be for the government to ignore us and our request to be treated with dignity, respect and the humanity that we all deserve. It just makes me so happy. A statement like that might not feel like a big deal, but it is a big deal. It's a big step forward in the right direction and it fills me with hope that as our community comes together and unites to fight the systemic oppression and barriers that we currently face, the future is bright. I can't believe it's the end of season one (laughs) and I honestly can't believe any of you are listening. (laughs) Uh, I joke, I joke. Um, No, seriously, I started this podcast because I wanted to create content for people like me who are just trying to understand themselves and figure out their identity and find community and navigate this complicated world. And I'm just so grateful that clearly I am not alone. So thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Believe it or not, I have a lot more content talking to Francis, uh, including about half an hour's worth discussing our feelings about the current state of the NDIS. So if you're interested in that, head over to Princess and the P Patreon and you can become a VIP or a Queen P and join our little exclusive community for some extra bonus resources and behind the scenes content. Woohoo! We're already halfway through recording season two and wow, we've got some more incredible neurodivergent humans coming on and I just can't wait. Please do reach out on the socials. I absolutely love hearing from you all and learning what content you want and what's resonating with you and how I can help in any way. I love our little community and I feel very privileged to be able to be in the position that I'm in. If you do like what you hear, please head over to Apple and give us a five-star rating. Woo! It really helps get the word out that all neurodivergent and highly sensitive humans should be listening to Princess and the Pea. But genuinely, thank you so much for your support. And I look forward to another season of fun. Catch you next time. Over and out.